Well, I don't know if you've discovered this show on TV. Uh, it's, it's one that I've been watching here and there, but I really like it because I'm really fascinated with uh, magic tricks and illusions. Um, in this show, um, illusionists from all around the world, really, you know, really great ones would go and perform in front of Penn and Teller, who were really the maestros. Um, and no matter how they wow us as the audience, Penn and Teller are somehow, mostly, most of these uh, times, able to tell exactly how these guys have done their tricks. And the reason is, of course, magic tricks, illusions, um, they follow formulas, because it's not real magic, right? Um, there are variations on old tricks that have, and routines that have been done in the past, and Penn and Teller, being such students of magic, they know how, exactly how it's done. And so, with these magic tricks, they often um, work by the illusion of randomness, right? Through misdirection, they make you think it's random, uh, they make you think you've got a choice, uh, they make you think it's outrageously risky, but it actually isn't. So they're rigged, like card tricks, for example. Um, you think you're choosing a card, which is random, but it's actually exactly the card that the uh, person wants you to choose. Uh, or those prop illusions, you know, where people are sawn in two, or there's coin tricks, or disappearing objects, and people walking through walls. Well, you're actually only seeing what they want you to see. And then the ones with audience participation, or even um, street magic, right? You think they're random people, but often they're not, right? They're pre-arranged participants. Now, I wonder if you, if you're a believer in God, do you ever feel like your life is a li little bit like that? What I mean is this, that like, you know that God is in control. You know that history is determined. Whatever will be, will be. And, and so it's easy to think, well, what difference does it really make what I do? Yeah, are my life and my choices really like an illusion? But I actually don't make a difference at all. Have you ever felt that? See, a lot of followers of Jesus, maybe you feel sometimes that, well, where our prayers, you know, what difference does it make if I pray or not, if God's already determined what's going to happen? Or evangelism, sharing the gospel, if, if God's already chosen who's going to be saved and who's not, then does it really matter what I do? And then we've got obviously lockdown, a hundred days of lockdown in Sydney so far, and everything's ground to a halt. You really start thinking, does anything I do really, really matter? Now, if this is what you're thinking, I want to tell you today from the Bible that nothing could be further from the truth. You remember the passage we read from 1 Peter chapter 2. It speaks about how special we are to God, right? That we're God's chosen people. We're a holy nation. We're so special to him, his special possession. We're plucked out of darkness, into his, brought into his wonderful light. But then there's a key idea there that I really want to pick up today. And that's the idea of the royal priesthood. Yeah, you are a royal priesthood. Because here's the thing. I reckon if we understood that, what it means to be a royal priesthood, we could never think that what we do, what we do don't matter. Because while God is sovereign and his plans and purposes will prevail, here's the thing. Being royal priests means that the way that God achieves his plans is with us and through us. Which means we don't just play an accidental, incidental role. We're actually key to God working out his plans. And you see that from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Yeah? From Genesis to Revelation. So I want you to take a journey with me. Before we do, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look through the sweep of your word in, in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that we might see not just your plans, but our role in your plans. Our prayer is that we would be a royal priesthood in this world 
to make a difference, particularly to look outwards, even in lockdown. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's start from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, which we won't read, you'll know that God creates everything in six days and the rest on the seven. Now, Genesis 1 is a bit like a wide-angle, bird's-eye view shot of the creation account. But then in Genesis chapter 2, you kind of get a little bit of an action replay. But like, you know, sporting games, you got the, the wide shot, then the action replay will zoom up close. And Genesis 2 does a little bit of that. So we're going to read uh, quite a little bit of Genesis 2. Why don't you follow with me? This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. Skip ahead a little bit. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. Now, a few important points that um, it's really easy to miss. The first one, you got to notice that Eden, or the Garden of Eden, didn't equal the whole world, right? Eden was not the whole world. In fact, strictly speaking, Eden wasn't even the whole garden. I wonder if you noticed that. Because firstly, in verse 8, God planted a garden and then put Adam into the garden. So that's why the garden isn't the whole world. It was part of the world. He had to put Adam into the garden. But then look at verse 10. It said, a river flowed from Eden to water the garden, which means there is Eden in the center and a little bit more of a garden outside. Okay, And beyond that, there was a world outside of Eden. So the center, you have Eden, strictly speaking, where you've got the two trees, the tree of knowledge uh, of good and evil and the tree of life. And that's where the rivers flowed from. Then right, right outside that center, center of Eden, is the outer garden where the rivers flow to. And then outside of that garden is, is the rest of the earth. So in a diagram might help you there. It, it kind of looked like this. Yeah. Yeah. Eden, the garden and the rest of the earth. Now I wonder if this is beginning to look a little bit familiar because thousands or perhaps millions of years later, um, that arrangement, guess what is exactly the arrangement of a particularly important structure in the life of God's Old Testament people. You guessed it, it's the temple. Know anything of the temple? This was the arrangement of the Israelite temple. You've got the center, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was most concentrated. You've got the holy place, one rung outside of that. And then you've got the outer courtyard. You see, Eden is pictured in Genesis 2 to be a garden temple. And so that's why you've got the future temple modeled on that. And um, there's lots of other parallels, but... Temple furnishings even are a reminder of Eden. I'll just give you one. Um, there's a lampstand that, um, oh, there you go. A lampstand that in Israel's temple uh, is supposed to be directly outside of the Holy of Holies. And that's supposed to look like a small tree uh, with seven branches. All right. And, and we think it's actually because it's modeled on the tree of life. 
Now, what's the purpose of all of this? Well, the purpose of Genesis 2, showing that Eden is a temple, is to also show us that while the original creation was good, it actually wasn't complete. In that it was just the beginning of God's plans. You see, there was a plan right at the beginning for God's presence in the center, in Eden, to actually radiate outwards from Eden, through to the garden, right to the world outside of the garden. Because you see, outside of the garden was the earth. The, The creation was untamed, uninhabited, uncultivated. You see that in verse 5. There was work to be done. And it's not just gardening work. But again, if Eden is a temple, then it's actually an expansion of Eden. It's the expansion of the very presence of God from the center outwards. That's the plan of God. That was the original intention of creation. Um, Now, how, how would that happen? Well, you see, when God created humanity, Adam and Eve, remember, he made them, in chapter one we read, in his image. And as his image bearers, we also read that this is their task. Chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, that's the man and the woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. Now, in the ancient world, not just in ancient Israel, uh, people understood what it meant to be an image bearer. It was, it was royalty, essentially. Right, if you're an image bearer of God or the gods, you were a king. See, God created humanity to bear his image because we were supposed to mirror his kingship. We were mini kings. God is the great king. He is the great ruler in heaven. But then he appoints humanity to be kings and queens on earth to rule on his behalf in his image. Yeah. So in chapter one, we see God, what does he do? He creates, and part of his creation is why he names what he creates, right? The sun, the moon, the day, the night, he gives names. But then we saw in chapter two that he gives Adam this task of also naming. I mean, Adam doesn't create in the same way that God does, but he has his own task of naming the animals, which is supposed to mirror God's rule and God's creation, creativity, if you like. God creates the world outside in chapter one and then the garden in chapter two. Um, And then Adam and Eve were to work the garden here in chapter two to keep it guarded and then to extend it, to further its boundaries to the world outside. You see, you've got another way in which humanity's task mirrors God's task in a small way. Now, of course, this means that without even going further, you can see that our role as humanity, as people, made in God's image, isn't just accidental, isn't just a nothing. It's not just incidental. We are so core to the plan of God in creation, aren't we? See, God set it up so that nothing would be achieved on earth without humanity's active participation and partnership because we are his royal image bearers. Um, If you know anything about companies, you work in the corporate world. If God is the owner, then... Humanity, or Adam, is the CEO, right? It's the same with with, um, sporting teams, right? You've got the owner of a sporting team and then the team's general manager, right? That's what it's like. Adam and Eve, made in God's image, were kings and queens. 
But they were also what? They were also priests. Because remember, Eden was the first ever temple. And Adam and Eve served God right in the center, the sanctuary of that temple. And their task was to expand that garden temple so that it would one day spread to the entire world outside of the garden. Which means it's not actually how we usually think of priests. Like, I wonder if I ask you, what do you think of when you think of priests? What comes to mind? It probably has to do with clothing, either you know, funny collar or those fancy vestments, uh, the uh, people that do religious rituals kind of in a church or a temple. And it's, they're pretty much removed from the outside world. That's what we usually think of when we think of priests, right? Or if you're a little bit more knowledgeable of the Old Testament, um, then, then priests and priesthood is associated, especially with, 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 with offering sacrifices for sin, atoning for sin, killing uh, animal sacrifices. That, well, that's what we usually think of when we think of priests, yeah? But you see, if Eden was the first temple and Adam and Eve were the first priests, then those ideas of priesthood cannot be the core of what it means to be priests, right? I mean, even the Old Testament images of ideas of priests offering sacrifices for sin, I mean, that's really important, but that can't be at the core because why? There in the Garden of Eden, in the first temple garden, there was no sin. There was no death. There was no need for sacrifice. And yet, Adam and Eve were priests. So what is at the core of being a priest? Well, I'll suggest to you it's this. Being a priest is to be in the presence of God and to bring the presence of God to the world outside. Okay? Adam and Eve as priests, they were to walk in, in a dynamic, joyful, worshipful trust and obedience in God's very, very presence at the center of the garden. And then through their priestly as well as their kingly role and work, they would bring the presence of God so that it would spread to the rest of creation. In other words, to be a priest is to enjoy and steward and then mediate the presence of God. Yeah, that's priesthood at its very core. It was for Adam and Eve. It is for us, but more of that later on. Now, of course, if you know the next chapter of Genesis, you'll know that at the beginning, Genesis 3, shortly afterwards, sin enters the world and sin spoils everything. So this Eden temple, because of sin, is shut off from humanity. The true temple is completely inaccessible on earth. And humanity as a whole lost their special place as king priests or royal priesthood. But of course, we know that God's plan cannot and will not be thwarted. Because fast forward now to the end. What did we uh, look at when we looked at the end of Revelation? You remember? Let's just read some of those passages again. In light of what we've talked about, hopefully some of new ideas will click into place. Look at what it says in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is a new creation now. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And what did you notice about the new creation? Well, it's a city, right? Descending out of heaven to earth. It's a city because 
Um, it's populated. It's, but it's also there, the dwelling place of God. And that's really the key idea that the whole city, which encompasses the whole earth, would be the very place of God's presence. In other words, the whole of it is now the Holy of Holies. But then skip to chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation. You'll also see that this city is remarkably like a garden, isn't it? Look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You remember that in Genesis 2? The rivers flowing from Eden. Yeah. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, here it is, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. What's the new creation? It's one massive city slash garden slash temple slash Holy of Holies, that's what it's pictured. Revelation does that, right? It mixes imagery. It's not supposed to be literal, literal. And God's people are what? Well, we're kings, aren't we? You see it there? Last verse, we're reigning forever and ever, but we're also priests. Now, you might not have picked up on that, but verse 4, when it says God's name on our foreheads, well, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, that's what the high priest had to wear. He had to wear a special thing on his forehead and have God's name on it. Okay, It was a priestly image. So you see, God's plan, when you see the end, as well as the beginning, God's plan was always for his glory and his presence to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, yeah? The whole creation would one day become a massive temple filled with the presence of God, just as he intended back in Genesis. Now that itself is a pretty awesome image, right? This is where we're heading. But you might think, this is awesome, but God's going to do it all, right? Well, what role do I play in this? Well, let's get to the next point. You see, between Genesis and Revelation is a story of how humanity as a royal priesthood would actually be the means by which God brings us about. You got that? That in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, we play the partnering critical role in bringing this around. And so you get the Old Testament. It traces the story of Israel. And we kind of looked at that, a lot of that last week in terms of mission, didn't we? How through this one nation and through their one temple and through their priesthood, God was trying, what was he trying to do? To reestablish what he had set up in Genesis, but what he had lost due to sin. But he's trying to bring about that end game picture in Revelation. Of course, we know that Israel's story is a lot like Adam's story. There was so much promise, but also so much failure. And that reason is because Adam and Israel ultimately were all shadows and pointers to someone else. Yeah, because 2000 years ago, God became a man and he came as the perfect Adam, the perfect Israel, the perfect temple, the perfect king, the perfect priest. See, Jesus, when he comes on scene, is the climax. He is where it's all heading. He as the perfect, he is the perfect temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, um, destroy this temple. He's pointing to the Jerusalem temple and I will raise it up in three days. And people are like, what is going on? What are you saying? It's, this temple's taken decades to build it. And John tells us Jesus was referring to his body. That's the true temple. And of course, the reason why is because 
the essence of the temple is not a, a structure, isn't it? The essence of the temple is God dwelling with humanity. And what's Jesus? Jesus is, or who's Jesus? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the fullness of God in a human being, yeah? Jesus is the true king priest, not just the temple, but the true king and true priest. He is fully God and fully man, so therefore he is the perfect mediator between God and humanity. He is the perfect priest. By his death on the cross, he also offers the perfect sacrifice for sin to bring us to God. And then by his resurrection and ascension back into heaven, he goes to the right hand of God, to the Holy of Holies. Right now, the Holy of Holies is in heaven where he serves as the great high priest and he reigns as king. Now you see both of those images brought together in a passage like Hebrews chapter 8. Look what it says there. He says, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not merely by human beings. Yeah, Jesus is the perfect priest and king. Now, where do we come into the picture? Well, here's the thing. Jesus does all of this, is all of this on our behalf. Yeah, he is the perfect model of Adam and Israel, what they should have been. He's the perfect king priest. But why does he do all of that? He does all of that so that we, his people, can be restored to what God had intended for all of us. All of us. See, God's plan is for all of his people, the church, for us to all be royal priests so that with us and through us, the presence of God can be mediated to a dying world in darkness. Yeah? Now, I'm going to spell out more of that later on, but I want you to know here that if this is true, then you can only, you and I can only be all that God created us to be through Jesus, yeah? It's only through Jesus that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be brought back into relationship with God, that we can experience God in us, God's presence. But it's also only through Jesus that you can experience your life as it was intended to be, life with meaning and purpose. And and, and so if you're here and you're listening and you haven't got that sorted out, you, you're not in relationship with God or you, you don't really know can I urge you to find out more? Alpha is starting on Tuesday night. It's a great place to start. Come and join us on that. Because you get Jesus and you start being able to live life as it was truly intended. And you also begin to live life truly outwards. So let's come to our final point. I want to say there are three ways. They all start with P, okay? But we're going to start with the most obvious and we want to end with the most important. Uh, the most obvious is obviously living outwards as royal priests means that we proclaim. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, remember what it says there? You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that what? You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Right? Being king, priest, being a royal priesthood, we are tasked with the privilege of bringing God to the world and the world to God. That's what priests do, mediate, right? Bringing God to the world and the world to God. Now, how do we do it? We do it firstly through proclamation. And I want to say that this is both through what we say, our words, as well as what we do with our actions. And if you're not sure why the actions come into that, 
You only have to look at the next two verses of that chapter we looked at. See, in verse 11 and 12, it talks about as foreigners and exiles, verse 11, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Yeah? Proclamation, declaring the praises of he who saved you out of darkness into wonderful light is words, but it's also actions. You see, word and action, word and deed, are kind of like, and this is close to my heart, two wheels on a bicycle. You need both, right? On a bicycle, you need both wheels. But here's the thing, you might not know this about it. Um, in cycling, and especially mountain biking, which I've only gotten into in the last year or so, you do need both wheels, but sometimes you often need to shift your weight towards the front or even towards the back, depending on the situation. And so I want to say the word indeed is a bit like that. Words and deeds, both wheels of a bicycle, both are needed, but somewhat, sometimes you need to emphasize or speak louder in one or the other. Now, which and when? Well, here's where effective Christian proclamation comes in. Yeah, effective Christian proclamation knows how to do both and also in what proportion to what people, in what circumstances. And, and there's not enough time to go into that, but that's something that we can all grow in, isn't it? Knowing when we need to speak louder or when we need to um, act louder, if you like. Okay, but that's the first one, uh, proclamation. Uh, the second way we live outwards as royal priests is prayer. Two weeks ago, I talked about intercessory prayer, where you pray on behalf of people or situations or even nations. And I gave the example of George Mueller, now, I don't want to say everything I already said before, but here's the thing. Often we don't pray like George Mueller because we often think, as I said right at the beginning, well, God will do what he does anyway, right? Prayer doesn't really make a difference. And remember, if everything that we've said today is true, then actually that's not how the Bible views prayer, is it? And certainly not how we should view prayer if we really understood that we are royal priests. You see, though God can do anything and he can certainly do anything without us remember how he set it up in the creation he chooses not to do anything without partnering with us he put us as humanity exactly in that role to be a royal priesthood so that it's through us and with us that he achieves things and this is especially true with prayer so i've heard it said this like this you see god can bring rain can't he without clouds I mean, he can do anything. He, is, he can do miraculous rain on a clear, sunny day. But how do we experience rain? How does he usually bring rain? He almost always first sends the clouds, doesn't he, to bring that rain. Here, here's where the illustration is going, right? God can do anything without us, but our prayer and our participation in prayer are like the clouds. God wants to achieve rain. He's going to bring the clouds first. Our prayers are the means by which he achieves his purposes. Now, if this is true, then it just changes your whole view of prayer, doesn't it? From my prayer doesn't matter to, well, God will not achieve what he wants to achieve if we don't pray. Have a think about this. There are people who you love, family members, neighbors, colleagues, um, people go to school with. They will not be reached without your praying. There are sicknesses that won't be healed. There's persecution around the world and injustice that will not be stopped. There's sins that will not be conquered. There's suffering that will not be relieved. There's families and children that will not thrive 
There's churches that will not grow unless we pray. You got that? You got the weight and the privilege and the power of partnering with God in prayer? It's that important. But then thirdly, I want to go to the most important one. Remember, what is at the core of being priest is what? The presence of God and mediating that presence, yeah? It's what Christ came to bring. Christ, God with us, and through faith in him, God, through the Holy Spirit, is in us. That's what Christ gives us. And it's what Jesus' return will finally complete. That picture at the end of Revelation, the dwelling place of God with people. Heaven come to earth, the whole new creation be one massive holy of holies where we can see God face to face. That's the end game. So what is our task right now? Well, let me summarize it like this. Our task as the people of God, as the church, is to be a royal priesthood so full of God's presence so that the whole creation will one day be filled and transformed by his presence when Christ returns. Yeah? Our task as a church is to be a royal priesthood so full of God's presence so that the whole creation will be one day filled and transformed by his presence when Christ returns. So that means in the here and now, we will be able to do this to the degree that we as individual followers of Jesus and we together as a church experience and grow and glow Right, G-L-O-W, glow, with the presence of God. See, what do I mean by this? I wonder if you've ever seen or interacted with a Christian that actually is a glow with the presence of God. Have you met someone like that who's been so touched by having been in God's presence that so powerfully and joyfully transformed because there is a depth to their walk with the Lord that God almost radiates out of them. Like, have you met someone like that? Have you been in the presence of someone? I have. And when you meet someone like that, it's, it's unsettling. <laughs> it really kind of disturbs you. But it's also extremely attractive. It's infectious, isn't it? It makes you hunger for that kind of walk with them. That's what we're talking about. Or have you ever been part of a church or a group of Christians that's like that? That, that literally... Being there in that gathering is, is like a taste of heaven on earth. And you don't ever want to leave. Have you experienced something like that in a corporate setting? Now, I want to say to you, those are not only possibilities, but they're things that we should eagerly desire for our own lives and, and for our church. Right? To be so walking so closely with the Lord that his presence is almost something you can touch. It's tangible. And it's there, not just in your joys, but especially, and often this is the case with those who walk deeply with the Lord, it's especially because they've suffered, right? And especially in our sufferings. That Jesus' likeness is so imprinted on us that when people see us, they see Jesus and they want to know Jesus. And how do you do that? Now, how do you, in the words of an old classic uh, from the... Uh, I think the 17th century, how do you practice the presence of God? Well, that's another topic for another time, but it's something that we might, you might want to stay around for response time in breakout rooms to chat more about. But I just want to pose this question for you today. Is this something that you even long for? This kind of close connection with God, 
is kind of walking in his presence, drinking, deep, drinking deeply from the well of his presence every single day. Is this something that you actually even want for you, for our church? Or is it something that you've just kind of forgotten about and you're willing to settle for a lot less? Right? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Is it even something that we want or have we just begun to settle for less? Now, those of you who are into marketing or advertising, you'll know the holy grail of marketing is for a product to go viral because then it's not just something that you have to pay to advertise. It's just everywhere. And I don't mean just social media rival, right? Uh, viral, sorry. You know, when, when a product becomes the only brand you think about, that's when you know it's really, you know, taken hold. So for example, um, in, in America, you would actually ask, ask for an, a Kleenex, not a tissue. Or when you make a photocopy, you ask for a Xerox, all right? Or we know this, right? You don't do a search engine search, you go and Google something, right? That is the holy grail of marketing. When it just goes viral, it just replaces, the brand replaces the product. You see, when God's people individually and as a church live out the presence of God as royal priests, that's the kind of thing that can happen. That Jesus actually becomes viral. He catches on. And when you do this, Guess what? The first two things, proclamation and prayer, they happen naturally as well. And then church life bursts outwards beyond programs and events. And when you multiply that, you get revival. You see, when it becomes like that, and that's something, oh, that we should be praying for and longing for and seeking, right? When it becomes like that, nothing, including lockdown, can stop you going outwards. Is that right? Let's pray. Father, we long for and pray for such an experience of your presence in our daily lives as individuals, but also as a church, so that being your royal priests, being your temple, we might see the whole earth filled with knowledge of your glory and presence as the waters cover the sea. That is our longing. So increase that longing and make us people like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.